Good morning. I'll try to get in a better mood. Oh, my. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, so let's begin as we do in silence. Uh, do what you need to do just to be here. Get your body in the room. You don't have to worry about a football game this afternoon. There's not one. Uh, oh, wait a minute. The Pro Bowl today. I forgot that. Okay. Just be here. No matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. And the prayer that I got from something that our choir did several years ago and then uh, adapted first for my own use and then started using it in here is really easy to remember. Um, so um, grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our ears and in our hearing. Grace be in my mouth and in my speaking today. Grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And grace be at our ends and at our departing. I was thinking um, about how I wanted to get, get into this particular piece and that um, a number of years ago, I mean, it was years ago, uh, Sherry and I attended a psychology conference in Atlanta, and we were sitting on the front row because we wanted to be able to hear the latest report on research that a man named John Gottman, who is just breaking, I mean, his awareness of him is just breaking into the field of psychology at that time, was going to give a report on his most recent research at this conference. John Gottman is... Um, Used to be at the University of Washington in Seattle, and uh, he owned some market in relationship research in the United States. And um, he was impeccably dressed, I remember that. And one of the things that he said in his presentation was that there needed to be a six to one ratio of positive to negative exchanges in a relationship. Six to one positive to one negative. Right. Later today, I'm going to talk about relationship work, and you can remember this part at that time. So in relationships, it's, you know, thank you for bringing the coffee. You look nice in that color. I appreciate the meal you made, that sort of thing. Six to one positive exchanges. So after that, he said a lot of other things. So after that, we went to lunch, and I said to Sherry, Wow, those six things are really important uh, in a relationship. And she said, I didn't hear that. <laughs> she said, what I heard was how powerful that one thing is, that it can wipe out so much. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. 
And I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for last Sunday. If you were not here, and thank you to Arlene Wells for these photographs. Last Sunday, we cooperated with the Rise Against Hunger program. And in this room from 10 a.m. until late in the day, there were over 300 volunteers. We'd hoped for 200. We had so many that they didn't know what to do with us. The goal was to do 55,000 meals. We did more than that during that day. Thank you. I mean, really, it just, uh, it, it, it was an amazing experience. And we, uh, as a clergy staff, met this week, and we were talking about things that we might be able to do to replicate that because it was good community building and people who wouldn't normally sit together sat together and did task and that sort of thing. So I don't know what we can come up with, um, but we'd like for it to be something that would do that. So um, that, was, that was a great thing. I'm really grateful that we did that. If you come up with something, um, let me know. I had a professor in seminary, um, a man I admired enormously. Tragically, he was killed in a car wreck very early in his life. Uh, but he's a great professor, great professor of, of preaching. He introduced me to uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he, he was a great guy. He's the guy who actually led the way for my being on the faculty in that, in that school. And he's very progressive. And um, I, I remember one of the things he said at a lecture once, he said, a sermon is not like a football game that can be won in the last few seconds with a field goal. He went on to say that the truthfulness and relevance of the sermon has got to be established in the first few minutes or the game's over. No pressure there. Um, now, he taught that over 50 years ago before we had cable television, before we had these smart devices, um, before we had all the other things that we can have in our culture. There were no things like that. Entertainment has become such a powerful force in our culture. Last Sunday, there were two football games played to determine who will be playing next Sunday in the Super Bowl. The Kansas City Chiefs <laughs> will be playing the Los Angeles 49ers. I don't know if you saw those games last week. Huh? San Francisco 40. I'm a huge football fan, as you can tell. Uh, I watched both those games. Did you? They were great games. Both of them were really good football games. And I, if I were a betting person, I'd probably bet on the 49ers for next Sunday. I hope Kansas City wins because I like Patrick Mahomes. And I have a fight with... Melinda Owen, who is on the staff here and is going to come and talk with me sometime about something we got going here at St. Paul's. <clears throat> she doesn't like um, the 
Chiefs because she doesn't like Patrick Mahomes, who is a Texas boy, by the way, from Whitehall, I believe, near here. Trey Burns came to us from the church where, or community where Patrick Mahomes grew up. So um, one, one, one time, Melinda and I were doing a funeral together and beforehand we were talking with a food preparing people who were getting ready for the thing after the funeral. And I said something about the Chiefs and Melinda just went ballistic again. And she said, I just hate it that Patrick Mahomes keeps being compared to Tom Brady. He is no Tom Brady. You should not compare him to Tom Brady. I said, Melinda, I don't compare Patrick Mahomes to Tom Brady. I think he's more like Jesus. <laughs> and that really got her, so. But anyway, last Monday, the front page article about the Chiefs win over the Baltimore Ravens, the second paragraph, has this earth-shaking, attention-grabbing sentence. Second paragraph, first sentence. Kelsey, that's Travis Kelsey, caught 11 passes for 116 yards and a touchdown. And now... The big question at next month's Super Bowl in Las Vegas is, wait for it, whether his girlfriend, Taylor Swift, will be able to make it to the game. At any rate, the people who come to a gathering like this are exposed to over-the-top, multi-million-dollar entertainment production on Saturday evening, and then if they come to church, they hear, if they are frequent attenders, not only something they've heard 20 times before, but something that does not fit a worldview that no longer exists. It's a challenge. So teachers who are charged with the responsibility of passing on wisdom from ages past with the desire to shape those teachings in ways that can lead to transformation, always face the challenge of what do you say in those first three minutes? How do you get the attention? And this is why stories of heroes almost always begin <clears throat> with some dire straits that the hero has experienced and has to get out of, so that you wonder what's going to happen next. We, we get hooked. Harry Potter. Parents had been killed by Voldemort. He has a scar on his forehead. Before going to Hogwarts, he lived underneath, underneath a staircase in a small space in a muggle's house. What's going to happen next? Superman is an orphan from another planet, and he's all-powerful except for kryptonite. And then, of course, there is Luke Skywalker, the son of Darth Vader, who's got to be hidden away from his father. And oh, no, the stories of heroes begin. And this is true for the Jesus narrative as well. Now, I have mentioned to you that in addition to the narratives that are included in the Christian scriptures, there are three scholarly books 
that have sought to put forth a narrative of the life and teachings of Jesus. And the commitment of these scholars has been to, to include only what could be uh, deduced as factually, historically accurate information. So they all begin with some reference to the birth of Jesus. Historical fact, Jesus is born. Now the stories about the birth of Jesus are very late in the tradition. And they are considered parables about Jesus created by the followers of Jesus decades after the death. So in these references, the birth of Jesus gets only a scant reference. Then there's something about the Jesus relationship with John the Baptist, which we talked about two weeks ago in the title Splash. By the way, you know what John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Their middle name. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's a blessing, it's a curse. So we talked about that in Splash, and I, I, if you didn't get that, you can go back and get it. So all three references, then, all three of these books have some reference about after the baptism, Jesus' experience in the wilderness. Stephen Mitchell, the uh, book on the far right, uh, and the one that I'm trying to get most of the guidance from, this is such a, such a great book, uh, has one sentence and that sentence is, and afterward the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days with the wild animals. That's it. Now, what's surprising is that the other two books, Tolstoy and uh, the book that was the product of the Jesus Seminar, um, they have very complete statements about this, much like you would find in the three Gospels. So I want to read to you what is in Funk's The Gospel of Jesus and then talk about it. And then about its relevance for us. <clears throat> Jesus was guided into the wilderness by the Spirit to be put to test by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was famished. And the tester confronted him and said, to, and said, To prove your God's Son, order these stones turned into bread. He responded, it is written, human beings are not to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of God's mouth. Then the devil conducts him to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and says to him, to prove your God's son, jump off. Remember, it's written to his heavenly messengers, he will give orders about you, and with their hands they will catch you so you won't even stub your toe on a stone. Jesus said to him, Elsewhere it is written, You are not to put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the empires of the world and their splendor and says to him, I'll give you all these if you will kneel down and pay homage to me. Finally Jesus said to him, Get out of here, Satan. Remember it is written, You are to pay homage to the Lord your God and you are to revere him alone. Then the devil leaves him, and heavenly messengers arrive out of nowhere and look after him. Now, <clears throat> the reason I say that it is surprising that this story is included 
in these works that are devoted to historical accuracy is that no reputable scholar believes that the temptation experience of Jesus actually happened. Even before the explosion of biblical, archaeological, historical discoveries that began to come about in around 1945 and up until now, we were taught, even in seminary at, before 1945, that this story is a parable. Now, why is that the case? Why would somebody even say that? Well, for starters, two of the things we can say about the character of Jesus was he spoke the truth, he was honest, and he was marked by humility. Those are two of Jesus' primary moral characters. So he goes into the desert by himself. So where does this story come from? Is it consistent with the rest of the way Jesus is depicted to imagine him swaggering out of the desert, saying to somebody who just happened to have paper and pen, hey guys, let me tell you about an experience I just had with the devil. He tried to trick me in every possible way, and I bested him at every turn. When I was in seminary, I was taught there's no mountain in the world, certainly not in that part of the world from which you can see all the empires of the world. By the way, now, if you have a revealed theology, this story is not a problem. God dictated to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John what to write, and they did so. As a matter of fact, we have a photograph <laughs> of God dictating by an angel. This is the angel. This is Rembrandt painting, by the way. And this is what people believed for a long, long time. God dictated the scripture to people who wrote it down, and they... They did that. Now, <clears throat> we frankly don't know how the scriptures were written. We got some ideas, some conjectures. Um, but from the very start, we don't know. Um, we know that in the beginning, there were sayings and stories that circulated about Jesus. We don't have those documents. We have um, hypotheses about those documents, but we don't have them. The closest we have is the Gospel of Thomas. And these stories were passed along in a culture that had a long history of oral tradition and storytelling. And so incidents from the life of Jesus would be recalled by people who gathered to honor his memory and to continue that tradition. Hey, do you remember the night that Nicodemus came and spent hours with Jesus in the middle of the night? Just two of them, nobody else there. <coughs> Pardon me, and somebody says, yeah, I remember that. You know, I overheard Nicodemus say to somebody that blah, blah, blah. And then somebody else says, yeah, you know what I think that means is. And so a story begins to get constructed about the time that Jesus and Nicodemus spent time together. And out of that story is the most favorite verse of many people in the scripture, John 3.16. But just two people were together and no one present when that happened. 
So when it did come to pass that someone wanted to compose a narrative about Jesus, why did they put the story of the temptation at the very beginning? As I've indicated, this is always true in hero stories. Look at Joseph Campbell's work, and you'll see it repeated again and again and again and again and again. Our country has hero stories. I don't uh, know about you, <clears throat> but I was taught two hero stories about our country when I was a kid that were told to me as if they were the gospel truth. One of them is that when George Washington was a little boy, he took a silver dollar. How many of you have heard this story? Not as many as I thought. Sherry had never heard it. George Washington took a silver dollar and threw it across the Potomac River. The only problem is that when George Washington was a little boy, there were no silver dollars. And at the place at the Potomac where George Washington is said to have grown up, the Potomac is almost a while, mile wide. So that's what. Huh? Rappahannock. Not the, yeah. I thought it was the Potomac. Okay. Virginia. Virginia. <laughs> An authority here. Thank you. Another story, uh, which I think you all have heard. George Washington's father went out and saw that a cherry tree had been chopped down. You've heard this story. And uh, the father said, who did this dastardly deed? And George Washington said, father, I did because I cannot tell a lie. And from that day forward, no politician has ever lied to us. Okay, so who was Jesus? Jesus was a Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition of his religion. I'm going to keep saying that till you can say it in your sleep. Jesus was a Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition of his religion. Now, that sounds like a nice Formula, but just keep in mind what we said last time. Mystics scare us, and prophets offend us. So that if there is something about the Jesus story that doesn't stir up anxiety and fear, we might wonder if we're on the right track or not. Now, the most important mystic and the most important prophet in the Jewish tradition was a guy named Moses. The hero of the Jewish religion is Moses. Moses led the Jews out of Egyptian bondage, and though Moses himself was a historic figure, um, the stories that grew up around Moses, like the stories that grew up around Jesus, are largely parabolic, mythological. Now, there's nothing dishonest about this. This is the way that the Jewish 
genius for liturgy and storytelling manifest itself. So before we go into the relevance of the Jesus story, hero story, and it's important because as we go forward and deal with how the stream got polluted, this hero story is really, I think, important. I want to point out the parallels between the Moses story and the Jesus story. <clears throat> in the Jewish saga of the Exodus, it is said that the Jews were in the wilderness for 40 years because Moses didn't ask his wife for directions. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, not 40 years. So when they were in the wilderness, the Jews um, encountered three crises. The first was the food crisis. And this was answered by manna from heaven. Most of you know that story. <clears throat> and even today, liberals and progressives in the church want to find a way to make the story literally true. Oh, it was locusts. It was something that came off a plant. It was, it's a parable. It's a story. It's a good story. It's a story that has meaning. It's a story. The second crisis that the people in the wilderness had was they lacked water. <clears throat> so um, Moses took his staff and struck a stone and water came out of the stone. And according to the story, that was putting God to the test and later was called a sin in the Moses story. The third crisis came when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments so that he could put them in public schools in Texas. <laughs> and while he was gone, people created a golden idol that they could worship, and this is called the crisis of false worship. These are three crises that the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness wandering that Moses helped them deal with. Jesus is faced with three temptations. The first is the crisis of food. Turn stones into bread. The second is the temptation to put God to the test. Jump off the building, God will catch you. And the third temptation was to worship something other than God. Now, I want to say again that for the Jews to create stories like this, whether about Jesus or about Moses, was not being dishonest. <clears throat> this kind of creativity has a long history in uh, Judaism. It's a history called Midrash. When we get on in the Jesus story, we'll talk more about this, but many of the parables that Jesus told and the parables told about Jesus, particularly the one about his death, crucifixion, resurrection, were all created out of this Jewish Midrash ability. What would happen is that um, the, the Jews would take an event that happened and then they would go back into their scripture and see if they could find anything that reminded them of what happened here, and they would create a story about it. 
okay? Not dishonest. It was the way their liturgy and their, their storytelling worked. So <clears throat> literalism is a reflection of immaturity. I would go so far as to say now that nothing can be, be taken literally in the spiritual world. It's all metaphor to be used for the transition from ego to self, from the personal journey to true identity. Uh, literalism misses the point. Literalism makes all of us idolaters. Okay. So I spent half our time today delving into what I think what I call religious literacy. Um, I love this stuff. You may not, but it's essential to know. So that when somebody like me says something that grows out of this religious literacy stuff, you don't think it's just being made up. That there's some substance back there, some foundation that it comes from. So if we're going to use Jesus as an archetype for our story of becoming, for living in the sacred stream and cleaning up that stream, we've got to know the story. And I think it's a shame that the religious education program of churches in this country has not provided this kind of education for people. The scourge of Christian fundamentalism is the result of this lack of basic religious biblical education. Now, why is the story of the temptation of Jesus so important? Why was it put at the beginning of the narrative? And why do our best biblical scholars think that in spite of the fact that it is not a historically accurate story, it's still worth being told? How does it fit the theme of living in the sacred stream. Well, for starters, I think just getting some clarity about the story is important. And uh, for another, knowing what this story is seeking to convey at the beginning of this theme might, this is my hope, equip us some, with some realistic hopes and warnings about what's ahead, right? We all want smooth sailing. None of us get it. None of us get it. That's the great lie of Western civilization that social media amplifies. Everybody has a great life except you. And there's something wrong about you or for you if you don't have the great life that everybody else has had. We all suffer. We're all scared. Jesus had an encounter with the devil, and so do we. Again, don't literalize this. The fact is that we all have to contend with what in Buddhism is called the hungry ghost. Now next week, um, this is not my notes, but next week I'm going to wonder out loud with you, and you can be thinking about it between now and next week. Why was it that Buddha lived a long, healthy life and Jesus got crucified? Muse on that. Years ago, <clears throat> there was this preacher back in the hills of Tennessee who was concerned about his flock. They came to services regularly. 
As a matter of fact, the church is growing, but somehow he sensed their superficiality and how their faith had become trivial. So one day he hit upon an idea. He was going to go in the city and hire an actor to come to his church dressed as people had been led to think Satan looked. He was going to look like Satan. So he found this actor, perfect costume. The guy was a good, good actor, and he agreed to take the job. And so the plan was that on Sunday morning, during worship, right in the middle of the sermon, this actor would come bursting in the back of the church, come charging down the aisle, shouting threats of hell and fire and damnation and repent and all that. And it worked. I mean, the people got up, some ran out of the doors, some jumped out of windows, most hugged the walls and each other. A few people fainted, except one guy on the third row didn't move a muscle. Seeing this, the actor approached him and turned up the volume on his satanic rant. The old man remained unmoved. Finally, the preacher got down at him and said, Brother, aren't you afraid? Doesn't the devil scare you? And the old man looked up and said, Nope, not least. Why should he? Been married to his sister the last 38 years. <laughs> If we're going to consciously think about what we're doing in this spiritual religious work of living and moving and have our being in the sacred stream, we face these three temptations all the time in our conscious lives. Now, I say conscious because it's clear that many people in our culture are not conscious. So just as a gentle test... I want to challenge you today to think that today in your life there is still growth to experience and things to learn. Be open to the possibility there, there's something in this time today, maybe something I say, maybe something that you just get reminded of, that's an invitation for you to Cross the discomfort boundary into another area. Just consider. Because in serious spiritual work, this always has to be the possibility. Some of you from our times past know um, of my deep love and appreciation for Jim Finley. Um, I, I'm currently taking a course from Jim online called uh, Mystical Sobriety. And I just love him. I just, I think Finley is just one of the saints of our times, one of the mystics of our time. And uh, it's clear he's done his personal work in, in so many ways. And one of the things he said in the opening lecture of this course is, um, imagine you, you go into your daily spiritual practice and you close your eyes and you have your meditation time. And just imagine that when you open your eyes, you see as Jesus saw. 
what would you see? And Finley says you would see God. Because Jesus saw God in everything. Jesus saw God in other people, particularly the poor and the dispossessed. He saw God in nature. He saw God in common everyday things. Jesus saw God in everything where he looked. I got a new image and understanding for the word God this week. Actually, Matt Russell gave it to me, but it's from Barry Taylor. He says, the word God is the blanket we throw over mystery to give it shape. Isn't that beautiful? We are who we are inside the sacred mystery. We just forget it. We're no more than who we are in God. We're no less than who we are in God either. And our culture constantly tries to knock this consciousness out of us because it's not good for the religion of our culture that we hang on to this identity. The religion of our culture says you're not enough. Now, I want you to notice several things about the parable of Jesus' temptations. For one thing, Jesus didn't try to kill the devil. They had a conversation. He didn't try to avoid the encounter either. For another thing, there are three temptations. Now, three is always in stories and myths an indication of transformation. Something yet is to happen when you have three. Three blind mice, three little pigs, a minister, priest, and a rabbi walk into a bar. (laughs) Threes is the number of transformation. And the next thing I will point out is that they all begin with the same taunt. If you are the child of God. What's called into question is our identity. Okay? So in the first temptation, Jesus is tempted to turn stones into bread. And this is the temptation we have to give in to the need to be effective, successful, relevant, and to make things happen. It's not that those things are bad or wrong in themselves. It's the need for these things, especially in the eyes of other people, that can distract us from our true identity. So I don't know about you, but I am attracted to stars and heroes. I like Patrick Mahomes. There's something in me that sees that desire to be heroic and to win and to save the game at the last minute, to stand out and to shine. The life-saving call of Jesus is not to become or be a star, but to be part of a constellation. You are invited to be in the community of God. The kingdom of God, it's referred to, but the community, not stand out. I remember asking when I got an analytic training, uh, my training analyst, could you give me an example of somebody out there 
who's achieved this thing of integration, so I'd have a model of somebody to shoot for, and he said, nope, because the people who've achieved it don't stand out. They're not stars. Crowd approval is a risky thing. And usually when we buy into it too quickly, we're, we're feeding the ego, which is the system Jesus went up against. Love, honesty, freedom are not matters of popular vote. Spiritual work is about moving beyond what we want to what we need. So the first temptation we have to deal with is the temptation to um, be relevant, to be a star. The second temptation is the temptation to be right. Play a religious game. By the way, this second temptation is the only time in the scripture when Satan quotes scripture. The first and only um, fight that Sherry and I had where I used this line, um, I said, you know, you could be as right as I am or I could be as wrong as you are. Does this need to be right? You know I'm right, right? <laughs> Anyone who has a religion or a religious belief that causes them to feel superior in any way has been abused by that religion. More evil has come into the world by people of righteous ignorance and stupidity than by people doing intentionally wrong things. Religious ignorance and stupidity are reflected when someone is convinced that he or she has the whole truth of God wrapped up in their religious beliefs. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with being right. And when I use the word right in that sentence, I'm talking about being in line with the latest insights and understandings from all the disciplines of subject to hand. We're called to be and do the truth. That's one of the three things. Love, truth, and then freedom. And, and the, the primary thing of being in the sacred stream is not what you believe, but who you are. It was Mother Teresa who said, we're not created to be successful, but to be obedient. And being obedient to those three things, love, honesty, and freedom, won't always make you feel right or look right. And the third temptation that Jesus faced is seen in our need to be in control or to be powerful. There is no more current, perfect illustration of this in our culture than what you see being acted out by those who call themselves Christian nationalists. They have heard someone say, believe what I tell you, I can save you, and they fall for it. This is the need to be aligned with power and money with the misguided belief that that will make you safe. My uh, colleague, Jim Hollis, says that every morning when each of us gets up, 
Indeed, before we get up, there are two gremlins that sit at the foot of our beds. And those gremlins are fear and lethargy. And fear says, you know the stuff you've read about that's killing this country and the globe? It's too big for you to deal with. Don't worry about it. Find some way to distract yourself. Look the other way. And lethargy says, oh, you poor thing. You've had such a hard day. You had some chocolate. Tomorrow's another day. You can deal with this tomorrow. Play Candy Crush. Fear and lethargy usurp more of the days of our lives than any of us want to admit. So you just take a look at your own life and see how much of your time is spent managing fear and lethargy. Lethargy takes so many seductive forms in our culture. Numbness is the most popular. Fundamentalism is a wonderful way to manage lethargy because it provides the sedative of security. And our devices, I forgot to bring mine, um, they give us the option of 24-hour distraction. In my dentist office, there's a sign that says, you don't have to floss all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. You don't have to have a daily spiritual practice. But if you don't, lethargy and fear will beat you and cause you to give in to the need to be relevant, right, and in control. That's why prophets piss us off. They tell us the truth. You do this, you're going to get this consequence. If we open our eyes and see the world as Jesus sees, we see God. Which means that we see that in this world, everything hurts. And in this world, everything heals. One of the lessons, not the only one, but I'm going to saying it's the main one, of the parable of the temptations of Jesus is that it is not what we do that makes the difference in our lives, but rather who we are in service to. Our identity. Jesus came out of that experience with the heart of his message. And he spent the rest of his life living and dying for that message. It's a hint into the difference between Buddha and Jesus. The heart of Jesus' message was, I'm a child of God, and so are you. Buddha never said that. One of the things that <clears throat> attracted me to the writings of Carl Jung, but now I see this in all the great spiritual people that I respect, Jim Finley, for example, um, is that all of our fears come from 
the fact that we get separated from our true identity. We get separated from our true selves. That is, we don't live in the sacred stream. And I want to be really critical, crystal clear about this. There is a life-saving difference between being in the sacred stream and pondering it from a distance. You can read about it, but that's not the same thing. You hear me talk about it, that's not the same thing. The only way you learn how to swim is get in the water. Now, there are three things that are required to do this, to move into and abide in the sacred stream. One of these things is what we've been doing so far today, right here. We're gaining insight, information, knowledge, hopefully some wisdom and understanding, and this is critical. This is critical. I, I have been studying this stuff for half a century, and... Um, my current experience about what there's still out there to learn has me as excited as a kid with a new toy. I mean, there is so much more to learn. I'm about halfway through reading one of the most challenging books I've read recently. Uh, it's called The Not Yet God, Carl Jung, D'Arte Chardin, and The Relational Whole by Ilya Delio. Much of it is way over my head. Every chapter has 40 or 50 footnotes. But it is an example of the exciting work that's being done by the best minds bridging science and religion today. It's so exciting to see all this work that's coming to fruition, and there's more to come. But this insight is only one of three things that's required. You to guess what the other two are? They are courage and endurance. You know, over the years, I've had many couples come to me with the claim that they need to work on their relationship. Women are more eager to do this than men because women are smarter than men. Um, men usually complain. I don't see why we have to work on our marriage, but men, women know. And, and I understand what both of them mean. When Sherry and I used to do our relationship seminar here at St. Paul's, which I really enjoy doing and miss doing, and she doesn't want to do it anymore, um, but she won. By the end of the day, I had trained the participants in the seminar to respond to complete a sentence when I would say it. Marriage is a skill set. Marriage is a skill set. Marriage isn't based on how you feel. I mean, anybody who's been married for six weeks knows what it's like to want to cheerfully kill your partner. Marriage is a skill set. And the most important skill in a marriage is knowing how to talk. Not communicate, how to talk. It's impossible in a relationship not to communicate. Everything we do in a relationship communicates something. It's talking. Most people driving up and down Main Street, if you stop them, they will, you ask them, are you an above average driver? They will say yes. But it's clear that most people are not. 
You ask most people, you know how to talk? Sure. Really? It's a skill. But you know, even knowing how to talk isn't the work of marriage. It's an important skill to have. But the work of marriage, this is the real work of marriage, is trying to figure out why in the world of all the people on the planet you pick the person you pick to live with? You pick that one. Because if you delve into that, you're going to have to take some personal hits about your own transferences and your own projections. I should write it here, Bill. People do not want to hear this kind of information. Okay. <laughs> I'm convinced that people don't have a daily spiritual practice for this very reason. They don't want to hear what comes up. They don't want to deal with it. Doing spiritual work takes courage. And it takes persistence and it takes endurance. Now I said at the beginning. This is an entertainment. I hope you like it. I hope you find it entertaining. I hope you want to come back and all that sort of stuff. But there's nothing magical here. There will be magic next week. What we're doing, what we're involved here right now, in my opinion, is just spiritual common sense. And now we're left with the need to buckle down and do the work. As Holly says, the devil is sitting on the foot of your bed every morning. Lethargy and anxiety. Now, we have to have the intellectual knowledge, information, but also the courage and endurance to confront that reality and to get up and do something. So that we can leave that experience with the experiential faith. I'm a child of God. And so are you. And so are you. And so are you. And so are you. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you.